Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your weekly true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. This season is all about Edinburgh, Scotland. And tonight's episode is a famous kirkyard, aka cemetery. Possibly the most haunted cemetery on earth, a graveyard. That almost everyone at this point is familiar with, whether you know it or not. It is called Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh, Scotland. And the reason most of you are probably familiar with it is because a lot of the, I don't want to say a lot, but many of the names from the Harry Potter series come from tombstones in the cemetery. Also, I believe the graveyard scene in Goblet of Fire with when uh, Voldemort comes back to life, I believe that's also the set design is based on Kirkyard, Greyfriars Kirkyard. Some of the names that you may find in that cemetery are Anne and Robert Potter, William McGonagall, Elizabeth Moody, Charles Black, Margaret Louisa Scrimgore, I believe that's how you say it. Anyway, Thomas Riddle, Crookshanks, and so on. And I guess, I believe you can take a full-on tour and they'll walk you around to the different tombstones with the names on them. But the real-life events, of course, are horrible. And that's why the cemetery is one of the most haunted on earth. So let's get to it. Established in 1562, Greyfriars' name is after the Francescan Friary that was on the site that the cemetery is now. Friars wore gray habits. And Francescans are a Christian group within the Catholic Church. They were founded in 1209 by Italian Catholic friar Francis of Assisi. Kirkyard, Kirkyard meaning churchyard or cemetery. And Kirk, K-I-R-K, is just a Scottish word for church. So Kirkyard, churchyard churchyard now cemetery so of course there was a lot of religious unrest in the 1600s and this will not be a comprehensive history lesson so do not hold me to any of this i am not a historian but king charles the first became king in 1625 he dissolved parliament and ruled alone for 11 years. William Laud became the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1633, and together 
they took action against anyone who opposed the government and by association, the Church of England, Catholicism. And not to dive too much into King Charles I, who was eventually executed for his crimes against the people of England, but he was hating on Scotland. They were undergoing a Protestant Reformation and having a strong Presbyterian outlook. And at this point, Scotland was not part of the UK, so England and Scotland had beef religiously. The the king wanted Presbyterians to be more Anglican, so the church or the lands of the church were brought under the control of the crown. King Charles I became King of Scots in 1633 in an Anglican ceremony in Edinburgh. Scots didn't want to be forced back into the papacy, uh, Catholicism, and they were banned from practicing their religion, Presbyterian, Presbytery, if you will. The king introduced a revised prayer book for Scotland, and that really was the cherry on top of everything. Riots started, and the Bishop of Edinburgh was stoned. Like, Scots were not having it. And look, I don't like being told what to do either, but you can't go around stoning people. No parliament meant little money and little support for the king. He couldn't physically enforce his new laws regarding turning Presbyterians toward Catholicism again. So he made any refusal to accept these new laws and new church reforms punishable by law. This led to Scott signing the National Covenant at Greyfriars Kirk in 1638, an agreement signed by many people of Scotland opposing the king's reforms. And it was spelled out that the faith of Scotland and the freedom of religion was intertwined with Scottish Parliament. 150 nobles signed on the first day, and it united Scotland against the king's reforms, essentially against England, and spurred protests and eventually war between the two countries. Now, there was a battle of the Brigadier in 1639, uh, June 18th and 19th, at the Bridge of Dee in Aberdeen, Scotland. Scotland. And it was part of the First Bishop's War, which was later called Wars of the Three Kingdoms, meaning England, Ireland, and Scotland. And royalists were defeated by the Covenanters, The Treaty of Berwick was signed, ending the First Bishop's War. And it didn't really end the war. It was just more of like a truce, a temporary truce between the countries, the kingdoms. Royalists, meaning people sticking with the king and Catholicism. Covenanters, meaning people wanting to practice their own religion and not be part of the papacy generally meaning Presbyterians. A lot of war stuff happened that I'm not going to get into, but 
The second bishop's war, the Covenanters won as well, which led to another truce, truce at Ripon in Yorkshire. This is when the king finally called upon Parliament for help, but they voted to give assistance to Scotland instead because, again, remember, the king kind of like tossed them to the side when he was crowned. So they're a little petty and holding a grudge. So Parliament backed Scotland. And so now Parliament and the King of England are now battling. So Scotland sent 20,000 troops in support of English Parliament. This is when the king was arrested during English, uh, the English Civil War by Parliament and then executed on January 30th, 1649. And all of this is to paint a picture of what was happening at the time. We haven't really gotten into the cemetery yet. They signed, the Covenanter signed that one declaration at the graveyard, but I will never understand fighting over religion. I'm not religious myself, so murdering people because you don't agree with who they want to believe in is absolutely ridiculous. I'm not gonna sit on a high horse or go into it, but it's so silly. It led to so many deaths, but The main character of this story is Sir George Mackenzie of Rose, Rose Howe, I believe is how you pronounce it. Sir George Mackenzie was born in 1636. He was a Scottish lawyer and became Lord Advocate in 1677, which means he was responsible for the persecuting policy of King Charles II. So King Charles I was executed after the Civil War. His eldest son, King Charles II, is proclaimed king. However, because they're still in a civil war during this time, the Republic was led by a man named Oliver Cornwell. Oliver and Charles II battle, and Charles flees to France. Oliver dies in 1658 from sepsis relating to a urinary tract infection from kidney stone disease. And let me tell you, I have been diagnosed with kidney stones. I've had them since I was seven. They are not fun. I can only imagine the pain he was in before his death. It is horrific. When they get stuck, or if they're too big, usually one in the same, but Obviously, that can get infected if you don't see a doctor, so I'm assuming that's how he died, because they didn't have proper medication back then. But he also had malaria, which probably didn't help his case. His death, Oliver's death, prompted Parliament to invite King Charles II back from exile to a restored monarchy. Now, there was a Battle of Bothwell Bridge in 1679. With England getting their shit together, Presbyterians in Scotland were increasingly persecuted for their beliefs. 
So while England was having their little civil war, Scotland was backing Parliament. But Scotland was also kind of thrilled because no one was really bothering them with their new found religion. But when King Charles II was restored to the monarchy, Presbyterians began holding illegal outdoor meetings known as conventicles. And those meetings would usually be broken up by the government. Covenanters were fed up feeling like they were losing what they had gained back. So they battled the government on Bothwell Bridge in Bothwell, just outside Glasgow. Hundreds of Covenanters were killed and around 1,200 were taken prisoner. The prisoners were taken back to Edinburgh and held on land connected to Greyfriars Kirkyard, a.k.a. the cemetery. Because they didn't really have any space to put 1,200 prisoners. Jails were not big enough. Edinburgh was still growing at this time. It wasn't huge by any means. So they used an outdoor yard, essentially, connected to the cemetery. And that yard is now known as the Covenanter's Prison. This event began a period of conflict in Scotland known as the Killing Time. So, George Mackenzie, remember he is responsible for persecuting people in Scotland under King Charles II. He is the one that imprisoned the 1,200 Covenanters in Greyfriars Kirkyard because they were too many prison prisoners for the prisons or Edinburgh Castle, because Edinburgh Castle also had some jail cells, but again, there's too many prisoners. So they made this makeshift prison in a field. The field was enclosed on one very tall wall, which was part of George Harriet's school. Two other sides of the field were enclosed by the Floden Wall. If you remember back to the last episode, the Floden Wall is the wall that surrounded Edinburgh as a city back in the day. So it was completed in 1560, and it was to protect Edinburgh and the castle against the English after King James IV was killed in battle on the field in 1513. Two walls are the floating wall, and they're pretty tall. And then you have the taller wall, which is part of George Harriet's school. And the fourth wall to enclose the outdoor prison was a fence, just a fence, facing the cemetery, Kirkyard, uh, Greyfriars Kirkyard. And that fourth fenced wall was heavily guarded. The prisoners were not given any shelter from the elements and lived in this prison for at least four months. During these four months, each man received four ounces of bread a day. Sometimes kind citizens of Edinburgh would give men more food as they walked by the outdoor prison, usually penny loaves and biscuits. The area was only three acres for 1,200 men. So the government quickly realized they needed to spread the men out 
to different plantations outside of the city or release them. So they offered, quote, the king's peace. Other people called it the black bond. It was offered to prisoners, and if they signed it, they could not raise arms against the king or his authority there on out, which many prisoners signed. They're like, if you sign this and say that you will not fight in a war against the king and England, you're free to go. And a lot of prisoners took it and peaced the fuck out and went home. The remaining men, around 400 of them, refused to take the deal and encouraged others not to as well. They're the ones calling it the Black Bond. England's calling it King's Peace. Whatever you want to call it. Specifically, preacher John Kidd and preacher John King, who were later both executed, were the ones encouraging the men not to take the bond. Those who didn't take the bond faced trials and were either imprisoned in Edinburgh tollbooth or banished to Leith. Five men were hanged and one man was released, even though he didn't sign the bond. I don't know why he was released. And then one man did escape. How he escaped, I'm not sure whether he climbed one of the smaller walls or he tricked the guards or something. Or he found a dog with some keys in his mouth and called him over. Who knows? 257 prisoners were loaded onto a ship called the Crown of London in November 1679. So the four months that these men were these men were imprisoned in Edinburgh in this field were through the summer months. So it was hot, it was rainy, it was not pleasurable. And again, they're only getting four ounces of bread. Four ounces of bread is nothing. A day. A day. That's a snack. That's not even breakfast. But yeah, the 257 prisoners who did not take King's Peace and were not hanged were loaded onto a ship called the Crown of London in November 1679. It was headed for America and they were to be sold as slaves. So the ship headed from Edinburgh and For those who don't know where Edinburgh lies on Great Britain, it's on the, like, east side of the island. And it's part of a little bay called Blackness Bay. And Blackness Bay feeds out to the North Sea, which then you could, you know, go north to the Arctic or south towards, like, the Netherlands or something like that. But it's, like, the northeast side of Britain. The ship headed from Edinburgh north to steer around the Orkney Islands to head west to America. The Orkney Islands are just a small grouping of islands on the north part of Great Britain. And you kind of have to just go around them if you're trying to get on the other side of the island. 
locals of the island told the captain that the weather was horrible and that they should camp farther south. Because it's pretty far up there. It's close to the Arctic Circle. It's November. It's cold as fuck. I'm sure it was cold in end of September or September. Like, they really were not thinking this through. They probably didn't care. Again, they're selling these men as slaves in America, so they really don't give a fuck. But I'm surprised for the captain's sake and for his own life and for his crew's life that they didn't camp out like they were told to do by the locals. So instead of sailing a little farther south to camp for a little bit, the captain continued sailing into a blizzard. And at 10 p.m. December 10th, the weather was so horrible that the ship was thrown into rocks, sinking the ship and killing most of the prisoners that were locked below deck. And again, the space below deck was so small, the 257 men, they had to stand, let the sick and dying lay down. But there was no room to sleep. There's no room for any of that. Y'all just had to stand and freeze your asses off and then unfortunately die. 48 of the 257 men survived and floated ashore. However, they were recaptured and spent their lives as slaves in New Jersey and Jamaica. It's so fucked up. These men somehow survived this wreckage. Either the ship being thrown into the rocks created a hole in the bottom, so they were like sucked out into the ocean were able to get to shore. Or the lock somehow was broken during this commotion and they were able to swim out through the top. Who knows? But these 48 men, which is not very many, like over 200 men died in that, I'm assuming drowned. Then they're recaptured and sold into slavery. It's fucked up. The other 100 or so men left in Edinburgh, the men who were not being sent to America, they died of malnutrition, exposure, or from some sort of random illness. Maybe scurvy, because all they're eating is fucking bread. Who knows? But basically, all those men who were captured who didn't sign the Black Bond or King's Peace died in horrible ways. Horrible. The treatment of these men led George Mackenzie to receive the nickname Bloody Mackenzie because he didn't give a fuck. He's Scottish and he is treating all these Scots like trash because the King of England doesn't want them to practice their own religion. After these prisoners were let go or died, George Mackenzie remained in office until he retired in around 1690 for opposing the dethronement of King James II. He died on May 8th, 1691 and is buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard, not very far from the prisoners 
and the prison he helped create. And with that, we're going to take a quick break and I will be back with the ghosts of Greyfriars Kirkyard. There are around 150 notable people buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard. So it's getting a little crowded. Notable meaning athletes, politicians, scientists, historians. There's a lot more buried there than 150, but those are 150 notable people. Some of my favorites that I found were Robert Chisley, who was part of the Darien scheme and died in an asylum, which is a whole other fun case if you want to look into it. John McMorin, who was an official, he was killed by a 13-year-old. William Jed, inventor of stereotyping, like the act of stereotyping people. Matthew Hardy was a violin maker. George Jameson was an artist. John Law was a minister imprisoned on Bass Rock, which was or is an inhabited island. Which is kind of fun. It's like just east of Edinburgh. It's pretty far out there. And it's literally just a huge rock. There's only really one landing area on this island. And I think the first habitat or like first housing was built in like the 1300s on that on the rock. And then it went through stages, of course, like it was owned by different people some for sailing, some for artillery. Uh, But then it was the castle that's on the island was used as a prison. I can't imagine being sailed out to this rock and being stuck there for who knows how long, guarded by who knows and how much food you're getting because I'm sure they weren't sailing to the island every day. It's not like a Alcatraz type situation. It wasn't a specifically built on an island it was just an old ass castle they converted into a jail but there's also sir george lockhart buried in Greyfriars kirkyard and he was a judge and again many 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 more people you can walk through the cemetery if you're in scotland or in edinburgh but sir george lockhart was a scottish judge who a he awarded a woman named Margaret Nicholson seventeen hundred mercs, and mercs is a uh, about thirteen to fourteen shillings. Don't tell me how much that gets you today. I do not know. But John Chisley and his wife Margaret Nicholson were unhappy unhappily married after having ten children. Ten. And there's very little documented, but it sounded like he was leaving her. So she asked the court for money to help pay for the 10 kids. And the judge, Sir George Lockhart, agreed to give her the money, which I think back then was like unprecedented. 
So John Cheesley was furious about the decision that the judge made, and he killed Lockhart on his way home from church on Easter Sunday in on uh, 1689. Judge Lockhart was in turn buried in the same mausoleum as George Mackenzie. Most of the ghosts seen in the cemetery are around Mackenzie's mausoleum or also in the Covenanter's prison area. There are different reports as to what caused the hauntings from the mausoleum or around the mausoleum. Some say a homeless man was uh, seeking shelter there. Others say kids were breaking in and stealing something out of the mausoleum where they in turn were playing catch with Mackenzie's head or something outrageous like that. Those, those two, the homeless man seeking shelter there and then um, seeing the first ghost or disrupting the mausoleum caused the hauntings to happen or they're saying these kids fucking around with the mausoleum and pulling dead parts out of the caskets or whatever that caused the hauntings. But as of 2006, there were more than 450 recorded attacks from a poltergeist. Anything from pushing, scratching, bruises, burns, report of a broken finger, people have been hospitalized, passing out is a big one. There's a quote from someone who visited saying, quote, it felt as though there was a hand over my mouth. I couldn't see anything. Then I started to feel faint. And the next thing I knew, I was away sitting on the ground. Everyone was asking if I was all right, but I was really confused. The next morning, I woke up with a bruise on my left cheek and neck. I couldn't believe it as I was not aware of hurting myself when I fainted. I started feeling it must have been something to do with a ghost, unquote. The attacks, not uh, not in the mausoleum, but the attacks in Covenanter's prison, got so bad that it is now locked down from the public. So the only way to actually visit Covenanter's prison is to, um, or like, step inside the prison, the gated area, is to take a ghost tour who has permission to wander that section of the cemetery. As for the mausoleum, I guess there was a ventilation shaft within the mausoleum that people used to sneak through to get inside the mausoleum of Mackenzie and his family and uh, Judge Lockhart. Um, but that's been sealed off because the mausoleum also gets too, like, aggressive. But you can walk up to the mausoleum to this day and, like, look inside and see if you see anything. The cemetery has gotten so bad with ghosts and sightings that there have been two exorcisms performed in the cemetery to ward off the evil spirits. Colin Grant... He was a minister of a spiritualist church. He performed an exorcism holding a candle, Bible, and cross, 
And after he was done, he felt successful. This was 1999. And things seemed to be fine. And after he posed for a photo in front of the church on the property. However, in the photo, there is a dark shadow passing by the window, even though the church that sits, that's part of Greyfriar, uh, was locked for the evening, so no one could have been in there. And within the year of him doing the seance, he was in his clairvoyant shop when he told his last client of the day that Quote, I've not got any good news left, only bad news, unquote. And he said that before having a heart attack and dying at age 66. So he died within the year of doing his exorcism at the cemetery. Coincidence? Possibly. He was 66, not very old. But I don't know what health concerns he had before. However... Who knows, maybe he took a ghost home. Because apparently there's a lot of very upset ghosts in the cemetery. If you take the ghost tour today, they will warn you about fainting and to take care, and to take care of your fellow tour guests around you. And I would like to visit mainly just to... My family loves to visit cemeteries, so it's just what I'm used to, but... It's such an old cemetery. It's got this really nice gothicness to it, which is, I don't want to say fun, but I like to walk through it. I, it's peaceful for me. It's nice to just walk through and it's quiet and my neighbor's dog will never shut up. But yeah, walking through the cemetery is peaceful, or uh, cemeteries in general is peaceful to me. It's quiet. You'll maybe pass by a couple people, but generally it's just very subdued, which is nice. But this cemetery, I guess if at night, I'm assuming most of this happens, because a lot of it does happen during tours, you gotta watch out. Your head gotta be on a swivel. Because if you're shoved, you have to make sure you're not standing in front of something that's going to knock you out. You got to make sure you're drinking water. Bring an inhaler if you have a hard time breathing, because apparently tons of people pass out there. It's wild. I'm, I can't get over, like, I bump into things and not realize it, and then I get a bruise. So it's kind of, I don't want to say bruise easily. I just think I bump into things semi-frequently, but... So bruises isn't crazy or like scratches isn't crazy to me, but burns, you, you would know if you got burned or not. That's wild. And a broken finger. I don't know how this person got their finger broken. If they, if it was a ghost stepping on their finger while they were sitting down or something, or if they were pushed into a wall, they broke their finger or a ghost walked right up to their hand and snapped their finger. I have no idea what the situation is, but that's horrible. And two hop hospitalizations, I don't know what for. Maybe it was for dehydration. Maybe it was because they passed out. But the fact that 
the city has taken precautions and they've shut down the prison or what used to be the prison area so people can't do it any longer. That says a lot. Whatever they claimed the reason for shutting it down is, I doubt they were like, we're shutting it down because there's a lot of ghosts and they're vicious. They were probably like, it's for safety concerns, you know. But to shut something down like that, that you've got to believe that something paranormal is happening there to pull something like that. And I'm sure, like I've said many times before, ghosts manifest because, in my opinion, because there's unfinished business or there wasn't justice for the victims. And it's George McKenzie lived a perfectly fine life after he helped murder 1,200 men, or not quite 1,200, but hundreds of men. He just kept his job and kept going and was fine. And there was no issue. His nickname was Bloody Mackenzie. Imagine having that nickname. Isn't bloody a slang for, like, fuck in England? Bloody means very. Gotcha. I don't think that's what they mean here. Bloody Mackenzie. Unless they're like, he's pulling a Mackenzie. He's imprisoning hundreds of people and they're dying. He's got blood-stained hands. Even if he didn't kill him physically himself, he was part of the process and did not step up and help any of them. And I'm sure he believed in what he was doing, too. I'm sure because he was Catholic and was part of the king's right-hand men, I'm sure he was thrilled that he was helping the king take care of these people that were disobeying him. Like, fucked up. But yeah, go visit, be vigilant. Maybe you'll see a ghost. Take lots of photos. Check out the tombstones that a lot of Harry Potter characters are named after. I believe there's a also Christmas, um, Christmas Carol. I think Ebenezer's also named after someone who's buried there, but don't quote me on that. For a palate cleanser, there is a statue of a dog in front of Greyfriars Cemetery, Kirkyard, Greyfriars Kirkyard. Uh, There's a dog in front of it, a statue of one. The dog's name was Bobby, and he was either a Skye or Dandy Dinmont Terrier. A Skye Terrier. I think a lot of people think he was a Skye Terrier, but they weren't common back then. When he was alive in that area, so maybe he is a dandy demont, but regardless, a little terrier. And the most commonly agreed story about Bobby is that a man named John Gray, he was a farmer turned night watchman who moved to Edinburgh in 1850 with his wife and son, Jess and John. And, of course, they needed to make money, so he worked as a night watchman, what we call police these days. And it said that night watchmen were required to have a dog with them. So, in comes Bobby, our little terrier. And they were looking for watchmen at this time because there was a lot of graveyard kidnapping in the 1800s, 
there is a famous duo that I may or may not talk about later in the episode in the season, but it was a common issue. There were people would dig up these bodies and then sell them to um, doctors so they could do experiments on them on these dead bodies or uh, do autopsies to learn more in the medical field. So people would dig up these newly dead bodies and sell them to hospitals and make a profit and like a and good money from it. And they would say some shit like, oh, my aunt passed away and she wanted to be donated or, you know, this is my brother. He, you know, I'm letting you autopsy him and do whatever you want with his body just so these people get money. Obviously, they're not related to them, but no one was asking questions at this point. They're like, oh, you got a body? Well, we're desperate to cut them open, so I'll take it. And they pay handsomely for it. So they start hiring a lot of watchmen and apparently accompanied with dogs. And they also started putting cages on top of new graves so people couldn't dig them up. And I'll post all these photos uh, on social media, Instagram, Twitter, etc. But it's literally a cage on top of a grave. So people stopped digging up these bodies. But John Gray, his dog, his terrier Bobby, were a new watchman and partner walking about the cemetery. Uh, John passed away of tuberculosis and was buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard. And for 14 years, Bobby would visit his partner's grave every day until Bobby passed away from jaw cancer. And he is buried just inside the gate of Greyfriars Kirkyard, not far from John's grave. Some speculate this story because there is like a no no dogs allowed situation. So if there's no dogs, how's a 14-year-old dog coming? Or how's a dog visiting this grave for 14 years and no one's saying shit? Also, how are we burying a dog in there if no dogs are allowed? There's a lot of speculation. But this is the most agreed upon story. And so much so that there's a statue of Bobby the Terrier in front of the cemetery. Which I think is kind of cute. Like, you really do make bonds with dogs and pets in general, but that is our story for this evening. Greyfriars Kirkyard, the horrific treatment of religious people in Scotland, the death of those men who are just trying to defend their beliefs and them being treated horribly, whether it's because whether it's in a huge field in the heat of summer, downpours of rain, or on a ship on the way to America to be sold off as property and then dying in the ocean. Horrible. So I don't really blame them for haunting the cemetery. You can follow Haunted Hometowns on social media for guest info photos related to this episode and every episode, and upcoming news. Please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And to help this little ghost crew grow, 
If you have a personal paranormal experience you'd like me to read on the podcast, please feel free to email me the story at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. Could be anything from getting goosed by an invisible hand at the mall to the gates of hell opening up at the bottom of your swimming pool. Let me know. And again, thank you so, so, so much for listening. I truly appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed and will join me back here next Friday for another Edinburgh story because everyone loves a ghost story. The music is by Tyre. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Queer Popstar and listen to his music on any streaming platform. You can follow Pepe Munoz, the artist of the podcast, at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. Fantastic artist, stylist of Celine Dion, by the way. So fantastic. Go follow him. I got my information from Wikipedia, Free Library, Spooky Isles, Wiley Genealogy, Dr. Mark Jardin, Mental Floss, and Eat, Drink, Travel. If you want to see videos of me exploring these places, Venmo me so I can take my little ass over to Edinburgh, Venice, and wherever else this podcast takes me next.